Our sermon this afternoon is from Mr. Matthew Steele. It is entitled, Atonement and Jubilee. Good afternoon. How's everybody doing? Uh, yeah, sure. Who's ready for a nap? Yeah, I'm with you. <laughs> I was like, I was doing really good right up until about the last hymn before I came up here. You know, it, uh, no matter how hard we try, at least <clears throat> how hard I try, I always think about food on atonement. I just, I can't help it. Think about what I'm missing. Thinking about how good it would be to have a nice cold glass of water right now. Am I hurting you? I'm sorry. It says to afflict your soul. I'm just helping. Right? But we, uh, we need food. We need drink. We need water. And Curtis uh, touched on that in the first message. We need these things to survive. If we kept going the way we're going today, how long would it be before we slip into a coma? And then how long after that, before we, our organs just start to fail and, and then we die? We need food, we need water, we need that sustenance, the life force that's in us needs those things. We need those nutrients for our cells to function. We need we need fluid in our body so that we can have blood to pump around and so that we can walk around the earth and get into all the kinds of trouble that we tend to get into. And so atonement really is a powerful reminder, isn't it, of how frail we are and how much we depend on a source of life, food, water, that sustenance that we need. But that's not what atonement is about. It might feel that's what atonement is about. It certainly feels right now and maybe in about, you know, three hours as we're watching the sunset. It might feel like what atonement is about. But our light affliction, this is a light affliction, isn't it? This is easy in comparison to the affliction that God endured. The affliction that Jesus endured and is in many ways continuing to endure for us on this day and every day. As we dig deeper into this day of atonement, I hope we can be reminded of some things. You know, Curtis uh, about spoiled my message earlier. He was like, well, we don't have enough time to go into, you know, the original atonement and all the symbols and the practices. Yeah, we do. <laughs> I got an hour and 15 minutes. Where are you going to go? Are you going to go eat? <laughs> and then he also said, well, we don't have enough time to get into Hebrews. Yeah, we do. Of course. And it is important that we do that. One, we're instructed to do that, aren't we? That we should talk about it, study it, in its season. And, and the reason being is because we forget. We really do forget. We forget the simplest things about the Word of God. And so it's easy, of course, for us to forget some of the complicated things. And atonement has a lot of complicated, overlapping images and theology. It's beautiful. And it's a little bit of work. But there's, there's so much in here. It's very deep. So we're going to look a little bit at the historical. And then secondly, we're going to look at how Jesus is our personal atoning high priest and, and everything that goes with the work that he has done for us. And then thirdly, we get a glimpse of something that Jesus has yet to do on atonement. Now, you might think that atonement's already been done. It's all completed. But there is one thing, one part of atonement, and we'll get into that, that he is yet to finish. 
So let's start in the beginning in Le Leviticus chapter 16 and verse 1. And it says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they offered profane fire before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come just at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat which is on the ark, lest he die. For I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. Don't just, don't just come in here, Aaron. This isn't any old tent. This is the tabernacle. And God's presence is there. And it's, it's not shielded. There's, there's no protection in there. Don't just come in at any time. God was sitting on that mercy seat. So he says, Thus Aaron shall come into the holy place with the blood of a young bull as a sin offering and a ram of a burnt offering. And he shall put the holy linen tunic and linen trousers on his body. He shall be girded with a linen sash and with a linen turban he shall be attired. These are holy garments. Therefore he shall wash his body in water and put them on. He shall take from the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats as a sin offering and one ram as a burnt offering. And so God is starting to put this process in place. Firstly, you don't just come in whenever you feel like it. This is an important place. This is a specific place that you need to be careful about how you are attired, how you are dressed. And only one person can come in here, and that is Aaron, the high priest. And he has to wear this linen garments. These linen garments were white, a symbol of purity, a symbol of righteousness, a symbol that in a ceremonial way, he was good enough to come before the presence of God. So we continue in verse 6. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering, which is for himself, and make an atonement for himself and for his house. <clears throat> he shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle meeting. And then Aaron shall cast lots on the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat on which the Lord lots fell and offer it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make an atonement upon it and to let it go as the scapegoat into the wilderness. And you know, there's a lot of moving parts as, as, uh, as Curtis mentioned earlier, but I was really struck a little by what Reg mentioned a few weeks ago, and then I, I was listening to an old sermon um, online, and, and it talked about the same way, that the elements here, they're not necessarily um, things that Jesus uh, was, because we know in symbolism he was the lamb. But they are representative of things that he would do for us. And I, I really like the way Reg put that. These things here are representative of what a high priest, that future high priest, is going to do for us. And in many ways, what the priest is doing, surrounded by the children of Israel, watching this, is a great play. It is a huge theater. And the plan of salvation and the plan of God's relationship with all mankind is being played out by this high priest before the entire nation. So each piece of clothing, each action by the priest, each animal that is used, the way that the blood is used, the way that the bodies of the, of the sacrifices are prepared, everything has a specific meaning and takes on an aspect of what Jesus would do for us. There are no other players. And I think that's central to atonement. Because unlike any other day when you could bring a sin offering to the temple, there'd be lots of priests milling around. There would be lots of activity, people go, coming and going in the outer court of the, of the, the tabernacle. But on this day, there's one man in there doing all the work.
And that's really important for us to remember. This is a one-man production. In Leviticus 13, uh, 16, 11, it says, And Aaron shall bring the bowl of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make an atonement for himself, for his house, and shall kill the bowl as a sin offering, which is for himself. And then he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from the altar before the Lord, with his hands full of sweet incense beaten fine, and bring it inside the veil. And he shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord. And the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the testimony, lest he die. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side. And before the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Just think about it for a second. To be Aaron in that place, in that moment. And not only <laughs> are you before the presence of God, which has got to be you know, scary enough, right? In his glorified state. And what if I don't do it right and there's not enough incense and there's not enough of a, a covering in front of me and I'm going to die? Well, in addition to that, his sons died right here at this spot. The pressure that must have been on him, the intense pressure to get it right. And the other day, it was, it was kind of interesting. I was, I think I was listening to a song on YouTube, and you know how they have on the side, they'll have other suggested things you might be interested in based on what, you're, what you've watched or listened to. I came across this interview with uh, Jim Caviezel. You guys know who Jim Caviezel is? He is the actor that uh, played the part of Jesus in um, The Passion. Did anybody ever see The Passion? Yeah. Um, powerful movie. And uh, if you haven't seen it, uh, I would suggest you see it once. It's an unbelievably powerful movie. There's unfortunately some inaccuracies in there, but that's the way the world is. But he was interesting. I did not know this, but he professes to be a Christian. And he was actually on stage at a church giving an interview about the production of the movie. And this, was, I guess, was shortly after the movie had been released. And he was just sharing how he came to be on the movie and, and some of the things that happened to him. Um, and it was interesting. It started off with, I guess, some phone calls. And uh, I think it was Mel Gibson that directed and produced the movie. And he was talking with him on the phone. And, he was like, I, I really, Jim Caviezel was saying, I really don't think I'm good enough to play this role. <laughs> Who's good enough to play this role? Uh, he said, I just, I just don't think I can do it. And so I guess they talked for a while, and, and finally he, he was persuaded. And then after he was persuaded, he just kind of paused for a minute and, and started uh, getting a little concerned. And he said, and Mel Gibson's like, well, what's wrong? He's like, I just realized something. My initials are JC, and I'm 33 years old. <laughs> and he meant it seriously. He meant it in a very humble way. And he went on to talk about some of the things that happened in the movie. So I guess at one point, you know, there's the scene where he's carrying the cross, and it's a real heavy wooden cross, and I guess he fell and it popped his shoulder out of its socket. Well, that doesn't heal right away. And of course, he got medical treatment, got it put back in place, and they continued with the movie. Well, throughout the crucifixion scene, he's got a dislocated shoulder because it kept coming out of place. Uh, and he was in a lot of pain. And he felt like that was OK because it was nowhere near the pain that Jesus went through, obviously, for us. There's some other interesting moments when he was getting scourged in the scourging scene with the cat of nine tails. I guess there was a miscommunication between 
the Italians, uh, well, actually, Italians playing the parts of Romans, which, you know, I suppose is probably, probably accurate, right? Um, so instead of, Mel Gibson wanted them to kind of do this in, in kind of like a, as though you're throwing a baseball. Well, that didn't translate because they're like, what's baseball? You know, I'm sorry, but nobody else knows what baseball is. So he said, well, like cricket. That's a bad thing. Because cricket's over the arm. So they go over the top of this steel plate that's in front of Jim Caviezel that's supposed to protect it. And just one of those cat of nine tails comes around and slices a 14-inch gash in his back. And he drops to the ground. One gash. And of course, how many did Jesus endure and still stand? And so he talked about that. And then the, the final part that I remember, um, well, this, I guess there's two parts. At one point, Mel Gibson was getting a little frustrated, and he cursed on the set. And Jim Caviezel immediately pointed at him, dressed as Jesus, and said, don't take my father's name in vain. <laughs> and he said he, Mel Gibson kind of just went away. <laughs> but the final the final thing that I remember was that he, during the, the, the crucifix scene, he had to get treated uh, by a doctor. He was starting to have heart problems, um, and they were really concerned he would actually die on the cross, uh, I guess because of uh, his shoulder being dislocated and it was actually causing issues with his, with his lungs and his, his chest. And, but he pressed on, and toward the end of the scene, he got hit by lightning. Because they were outside, and there is a storm circling around, and they wanted it to be filmed in a, in a dark way, because that was how it was. And so he actually got hit by lightning. <laughs> and during the process, he kind of glowed for a second, and everybody dropped to the knees. Pretty interesting. And... He professes, as I said, to be a Christian, and he takes that as um, something that he had to endure in order to be in any way worthy, and he wouldn't say worthy, of playing that role. So if you think about that, would you play that role? Would you be willing to be in a production and, and play the role of Jesus on the cross? I wouldn't. And then... I got to thinking about the priests and what the, the high priest and the role that he was filling. And he didn't know it, but he was playing the role of Jesus Christ in this great theater, this, this show that was showing the, the, the salvation plan of God to Israel and for all mankind. And the priest was not only playing the part of Jesus, but he was playing the part that Jesus would play in front of Jesus. How about that for pressure? It was probably better that he didn't quite know the depths that was being shown in that ceremony. So picking it back up in verse 15, it says, Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil, and do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bull, and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. And so he shall make an atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions for all their sins. And so shall he do for the tabernacle of meeting which remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. And there shall be no man in the tabernacle of meeting when he goes in to make atonement for the holy place until he comes out that he may make an atonement for himself, for his household, and for all the assembly of Israel. There's no one else there. There's only one that can make an atonement. And right there is Jesus Christ in this narrative. And he shall go out into the altar that is before the Lord and make an atonement for it and shall 
take some of the blood of the bull and some of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. And then he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his fingers seven times, cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. And that's interesting too, isn't it? That the sin is so pervasive that this uncleanness, even in the holiest and in the, in the tabernacle, that it's, it's just everywhere. And so the priest had to make an atonement for the place itself and for the people. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place, the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. Aaron shall lay both hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel, and all their transgressions concerning their sins, putting them on the head of the goat, and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to an uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. So, last night when I was writing this message, um, my son Benjamin, Benjamin and Joseph are, um, what did we say? They're about 17, where are we all? 17 hours in right now into the fasting, and they're actually that far in. They tried last year and had to have a snack. <laughs> but Benjamin came in and he said, uh, Daddy, how long have we been fasting? Why? I'm a little thirsty. We've been fasting for about two hours, son. I'm sorry. <laughs> There's a little ways to go. And he's like, and he asked a really good question. He said, well, what are we supposed to do now? Okay, so we're fasting. What are we supposed to do now? That's a really interesting question, isn't it? So I said, well, I tell you what you can do. You can read Leviticus 16. So he got the iPad and went over. I was in my office. He went over into, into the bed in our bedroom and started reading Leviticus 16. And I guess he got about halfway through, or I guess up to this point. Um, and he said, uh, Daddy, I just read something. What? The priest actually can put the sins of the, of the people on the goat. He can put them on there. I'm like, that is right. That's what happens. Symbolically, that's what's going on. And he just kind of pauses. He's like, that must have made the goat crazy. <laughs> yeah, I imagine it would. <laughs> must have made it crazy. Well, sin makes us crazy, doesn't it? Makes us do foolish things, irresponsible things, damaging things. And we can't fault Benjamin for asking the question uh, and, and coming to that conclusion in many ways because it is a strange practice, isn't it? I'm going to take all of your sins and I'm going to stick it on this goat. It's a little odd. And I imagine it was probably the only place where this was done, you know? There's been many what I call pre-corruptions about God's plan and, and, and different distorted versions of what he's trying to do with humanity. But I imagine this is singularly unique. That we're going to place all these sins on a goat. But it doesn't sound strange to our ears anymore, does it? It's even... It's even in our language. We have an idiom. When somebody is blamed for the, 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 the sins of somebody else, when somebody takes the blame for something that somebody else did, we call them a scapegoat. So we do understand the idea that somebody else can take the blame, can take the sin away from us. Then Aaron shall come to the tabernacle of meeting, shall take off the linen garments which he put on when he went to the holy place, and shall leave them there, 
and he shall wash his body with water in the holy place, put on his garments, and come out and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people. The fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar, and he who released the goat as the scapegoat shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterwards he may come into the camp. The bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought into the atonement in the holy place, shall be carried outside the camp, and they shall burn in uh, the, the fire their skins, their flesh, and their offal. And then he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterwards he may come into the camp. It's fascinating. We've had this atonement process. We've had the sins of the people placed on the goats. And now we've got to deal with the, the remnants of the sacrifice and the, the clothing that was clearly covered in blood from Aaron, from the, the sacrificial process. And it's got to be, he's got to be clean, washed, new clothes. And the man that took the goat away has got to be bathed and his clothes washed. And then the, the guy that burned the remnants has to bathe and wash his clothes to make sure that none of that sticky sin somehow got back into the camp. It's fascinating. And for us, we might think, well, sin's not like that. I mean, we might, we might carry it with us, but surely when it's taken away, it can't reattach itself. I think we can see that God looks at it a little differently, doesn't he? He can see that we can immediately be infected again with that sin. And that it can stick to us. And it mars us. And it changes us. It modifies our behavior. And then my sinful behavior brings forth what? Sinful behavior in others. And here we go again. Right after we've had an atonement. So God was pressing on them the need to be clean, to be washed, and, and that that sin is taken away. Don't bring some of it back with you. And that's another part that just struck me, that oftentimes we confess our sins, but we don't quite believe maybe that it's been taken away. It has. Leviticus 16.29 This shall be a statute forever for you in the seventh month. On the tenth day of the month you shall afflict your souls and do no work at all. Whether a native of your own country or a stranger who dwells amongst you. For on that day the priest shall make an atonement for you. To cleanse you that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. Atonement. In the Hebrew, as Curtis mentioned earlier, it means to cover or to cover over. It could also mean to pacify, propitiation, to forgive. But the word itself is interesting. The word itself is derived from another root Hebrew word which means the price of life, a ransom. The root of atonement, the root of that covering is to pay the price of life, to pay a ransom. Atonement is a covering that removes sin, that is a ransom process by which people are forgiven or brought back. So, we're given the commandment to afflict our souls. And in chapter 31 to 30, I mean, verse 31 to verse 34, we have the imagery that this is to continue forever, an atoning process, and that it is to be passed on from father to son in the Levitical priesthood, and that this is done every year. And it's supposed to have been done every year forever. Well, 
It was done in the tabernacle. And then it was done in Solomon's temple. But what happened when Solomon's temple was destroyed? There's nowhere to do to, to, to have atonement. There's no place. There's no holy of holies. There's no ark of the covenant. There's no mercy seat on which to sprinkle the blood. And so we have this gap from the destruction of the, the temple. And then we have the second temple, right, that was still had no mercy seat in it. It had a holy of holies. But there was still no mercy seat there. There was no ark. And God was not sitting there for the priest to walk into in the presence of and make an atonement. He was not in there. So there couldn't be a covering. The blood of the atonement, you know what they would do? They would pour it out on the stone called the foundation stone. They would sprinkle it there. What a sad, sad thing that must have been to be the high priest and know that this isn't the way it's supposed to be. This is not the process that God had in mind. But that's all that they had. No mercy seat. And today in Israel, is there a mercy seat? Is there a holy of holies? No, there isn't. And in many ways, what we've just read there, it's all historical. It's not taking place now on the earth. There's nowhere where this process of atonement is taking place today as written in Leviticus 16. But is that bad? Is that a bad thing? The Jewish people, the only part of the, the, the nation of Israel to observe this day uh, out, out of Israel as a, as a nation, all they can do is what we can do, is fast and pray. That's it. There's no blood to make a covering for their sins. There's no priest to take those sins and place them on the scapegoat. For them, because of their unbelief, there is no atonement. But for us, there is. For us, there is Jesus Christ, isn't it? Our atonement. There's an atonement that will never end, that will never fail, that is eternal in the heavens. And this is, of course, the atonement that we're, we're going through today, that we're remembering today. In the middle of the week, no less, when everybody else is all at work, this is a solemn day, a day that we really should focus deeply on. But how is this so? How did Jesus become our atonement? Well, let's go over to Hebrews, Curtis, because we have plenty of time. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 9. And, you know, I really wish we could probably, you know, we don't have enough time for reading all of Hebrews. Um, but Hebrews and the entirety in the light of atonement is fantastic. And I would recommend that, that you do that. But we have to break into the middle of this treatise that is, is being presented of how Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant, of how he's the new high priest, not serving on earth and performing sacrifices on earth um, every year, but is now serving in heaven. So we're just going to jump in, chapter 9 and verse 1. It says, Then indeed, even if the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary, <clears throat> for the tabernacle was prepared. The first part, which w was the lampstand and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, 
which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which there was the golden pot that had the manna, and Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now, when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience, concerned only with foods and drinks and washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of the Reformation. But Christ came as a high priest of good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, that is, you know, not of this realm, not of this physical world, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of the heifer and the sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant. By means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. That eternal inheritance. That God age inheritance. Through Jesus Christ, we are cleansed. We receive the atonement. We are covered by his blood and called to serve the living God. And then we drop down to verse 22. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in, he in the heavens should be purified with these. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. You know, I believe that Paul wrote Hebrews. I know there's debates among scholars for that, but if it was Paul, he saw things that were not lawful, as he said, for him to utter. And I almost get the sense from this that there was symbolism and understanding behind the objects in the temple that we don't quite understand now. That there's a deeper meaning behind the altars and the lampstands and the bowl and the, the, the incense. Not outside of the realm of what we understand them now, but in heaven. That they represent something very specific in heaven, in things above. And that there is a holiest place in heaven, in God's realm. And we'll, we'll look at that later. We'll see something very familiar in that holy place. And these objects are symbolized here on earth. And they carry the meaning that I think is just shadowy for us now. But what we can understand, what we can confess is that Jesus Christ is our high priest. And he entered into the holiest place in heaven to make an atonement for us. In verse 24 it says, For Christ has not entered... <clears throat> the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God for us, that he should offer himself, 
uh, not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another. He then would have had to suffer since the foundation of the world. But now, once, at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for all men to die once, but after the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time, apart from sin, for salvation. And that last line right there, that's kind of curious. Apart from sin. What is that about? Why did he have to put that in there? Apart from sin. Uh, to me, it's an echo of all of the washing that the, the high priest had to do, that the strong man had to do, to not bring any of that sin back into the camp. Jesus comes back after taking our sins away. He comes back to us without that sin. And that tells me two things. One, that he has removed our sin. And two, that the scripture is fulfilled when he says, I will remember it no more. He doesn't come back with it. Hey, remember when you did this? He doesn't bring it back to us. We are made without sin through Christ Jesus, through our high priest. He has made that atonement for us, for that holy place, the tabernacle that's in our hearts. He must remove our sin, take it far away. It's his promise to us. So, it's another sign, I think, that the symbol of the goat that receives the sin and taken away is Jesus, a task that Jesus performs and no one else. In Psalms 103 and verse 11, it says, For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Not another. It is Christ Jesus that has removed our sins from us. And then will appear without them, because they are gone. They are taken away. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 1, he says, For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things can never, with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then would they have not, would they have not ceased to be offered? And that's right, isn't it? If it would make us perfect, it should have been done once and never again. But that's not how that works. For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a remainder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of goats, bulls and of goats, could take away sins. Again, there's only one who can take away sins. There's only Jesus. Bulls and goats and sacrifices with blood are a shadow of the reality a shadow of what Jesus did when he died on the stake outside the city when he completed, if you think about it, Passover and atonement together at the same time. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which were offered according to the law. And then he said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. 
By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The largest reason why there is no temple or tabernacle somewhere, there is no holy of holies and an ark of the covenant in which to perform atonement on is because it's being taken away. That's what Paul's saying right here. He has taken away the first so that he can establish the second, which is the only one that can take our sins away, that can make an atonement for us. Jesus' obedient sacrifice, willing to do the Father's will, willing to do what the Father asked him to do, in spite of the terror, in spite of the tremendous pain, suffering, we are enduring a light affliction, aren't we? Compared to the affliction that Christ bore for us. We read in Hebrews 12, verse 2, that he endured the cross, despising the shame, and has now sat down on the right hand of the throne of God. Going back to uh, Hebrews chapter 10, and every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he has offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. And for, <clears throat> and for by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. And let's drop down to verse 17. And then he adds, Their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. There is no longer an offering for sin. Christ died once for us all. It's done. He really meant it. And he said, it is finished. It's done. He has done it for us all. So there's two vitally important things I would ask you to take away from this, this message today. Two points that I think are encouraging that can give us strength. First and foremost is that atonement both the ancient practice and what we do here today shows us that there is nothing we can do to earn salvation. I don't know if you've really thought that through, but the, the entire practices that took place on atonement was done by one person, nobody else. Now, of course, there was the strong man, there was a few ancillary characters, but the central character to atonement is the high priest and what he does. And nobody else does it with him. In fact, there is a, a long-standing Jewish tradition that when atonement was performed, the people stood and watched. They stood and watched. They were looking. <laughs> will our sacrifice, will the atonement be accepted? Will God accept it? Will he forgive us? Will he atone us and take away our sin? Or will we have to drag the dead carcass of this priest out from the holiest by the rope we tied around his, his foot? This is a very real concern. Clearly became a tradition for a reason. Will God accept that sacrifice? They just watched. There's nothing they could do. And in fact, they didn't add at all, did they, to their own temporal life force that day. They didn't even eat or drink. It's the reality of understanding there's nothing that we can do to sustain our life. All of our medical practices, all of the drugs we take, all the beauty products to look younger, everything that we do to try and hold on to the little bit extra of life that we can. And it all ends 
in a miserable failure because we all die. There's nothing we can do. There's nothing we can do to extend our life. Christ Jesus accomplishes that for us. He will accomplish that. That's what this day is about. And it's an opportunity for us to stand and worship before God and watch as he saves us. Just think about that. That's what this day is about. There's nothing that we could do. It's Jesus, the high priest. Jesus performs the work of the goat, of sacrifice. Jesus cleanses us and took upon himself and carried that sin far away as the scapegoat. Jesus did it all. Jesus has covered us with his own blood. Everything about atonement points to the one high priest, our advocate in heaven. Paul tells us in Romans 3 and verse 10, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have to all together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. We cannot possibly save ourselves. We cannot do anything to be righteous. There is nothing that we can do. The second point I'd like you to take away today is something that we have not seen come to pass, at least not fully. There is something about atonement that Jesus has not yet completed. And it's not because he failed. It's because it's not time yet. In a sense, it's because there is a special atonement waiting out there ahead of us. And we have a glimpse of that special atonement every 50 years. We find it in Leviticus chapter 25 and verse 8. It says, And you shall count seven Sabbaths of years for yourself, seven times seven years, and the time of seven Sabbaths of uh, <clears throat> Seven Sabbaths of years shall be unto you forty-nine years. And then you shall cause the trumpet of Jubilee to sound in the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement you shall make the trumpet to sound throughout all your land. And you shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty through all the land to its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you, and each of you shall return to his possession. And each of you shall return to his family. That fiftieth year shall be a jubilee to you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of its own accord, nor gather the grapes of your untended vine, for it is the jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You shall eat its produce from the field. In this year of jubilee, each of you shall return to his possession. And we've studied this before, this system of restoration. And it, it is a wonderful creation that God made in the year of Jubilee. Everybody had their land returned back to them. Every family had their property returned back to them. Everybody that was imprisoned, enslaved, set free. Set free. Beautiful imagery. And of course, we are now set free in Christ, free from the bondage of sin, free from the, the bondage of eternal death, because we have that promise of eternal life. But there's something else that happened with Jubilee that I might actually vote for Donald Trump if he introduced this into, uh, into our system of government. Otherwise, I'm definitely not voting for Trump. What Jubilee does it stops the oligarchs. I don't know if you thought of that. But it takes away this inherited power and wealth from super uh, effective and prosperous families. It takes that away and it restores the balance again. So that they don't become these oligarchy where the super rich make the determinations for everybody else. And there's nothing you can do about it because all the judges and lawyers and politicians are in their pocket. It is a way of governing that equals the playing field 
amongst people. And it's, it would stop the rise of oligarchs, something that I think we could all agree would be jolly useful right now. But there's a greater truth inside of this rich tradition. <clears throat> you see, something wonderful is going to happen when Jesus returns. As we know, when he comes back, there's a trumpet blast, which there's a trumpet blast on atonement. We just read it. There's a trumpet blast, and it shakes the whole earth. And what happens? With all those greedy landowners, right? All those that fought against God, the powerful, the corrupt businessmen and politicians, where do they go? They run for the hills, and they hide themselves in the, in the caves of the earth to flee from the, the one that is coming and returning. And then liberty is proclaimed in the whole earth. And then comes the most important moment, which is described in Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. It says, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Are you ready for that? I am ready for that. But how can it be? How can he come to this earth and just reign? What's the legal basis for him to take up rulership of this earth? Have you ever thought about that? Because there has to be a legal basis. God is just. God is just. There has to be a law. And there is a law. It's an atonement of jubilee. It is the jubilee. You see, the key element of jubilee is that the land returns to its original owner. Who owns the land? God owns the land. God owns the land. And we find the legal case for this in Psalm chapter 24, verse, verse 1 through 5. The earth is the Lord's and all the fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. It belongs to him. It's always belonged to him. And at that jubilee, it'll return to its original owner. This is the process by which God becomes king of the earth. This is the legal framework. Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? Or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of, of his salvation. Who can do that? Well, we already, we already have identified that that is Jesus that can ascend into the hill of the Lord and stand in his actual holy place. And through him, what does Paul say? We can have boldness. We can also enter with him through Christ, our atonement, who is our salvation. And he is the one who will return. He will proclaim liberty and he will take up his power and authority over the land because it was originally his and begin to reign. And the elders say, back in Revelation, we give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come because of you have taken your great power and have reigned. The nations were angry and your wrath has come and the time of the dead that they should be judged and that you should reward your servants, the prophets, and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. And then we see something. It says that the temple of God was opened in heaven. And what do we see? The ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. And there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, earthquake 
and great hail. The Ark of the Covenant is in his temple. It's in the holiest place. So I have a question. Was it there when he ascended to the Father and presented himself as our atonement, as the high priest, as that sacrifice that covered our sins? Maybe. My personal belief is that the ark is not on earth. It's in heaven. And the reason it's in heaven, in my opinion, is because there is no need for it to be here anymore. Because Christ died once for all as our atonement. He covered us. He atoned for us. He purchased us with his own blood and will soon come to proclaim liberty in all of this land. In all of the land that we're about to go and celebrate the kingdom of God on earth. And that, I think, is why atonement is placed where it is. We need to remember that jubilee, that God, through that process, takes the land back to himself. In that future atonement jubilee, and he reigns as King of kings and Lord of lords.